Hi everyone, welcome to our event. This event is brought to you by Data Docs Club, which is a community of people who love data. We have weekly events and today is one of such events. If you want to find out more about the events we have, there is a link in the description. Go check it out. There you'll see all the events we have in our schedule. Then do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. This way you will not miss any future streams like the one we have today. And last but not least, very important, join our community, our Slack, where you can hang out with other data enthusiasts. Okay, this week we'll talk about collaborative data science in business. And we have a special guest today, Ioannis. Ioannis is a lead data scientist at EasyJet. Maybe you've heard this about this airline. I for sure did because I used it a couple of times. <laughs> so in his role, he works at creating data products and solving business problems. And he's also leading the EasyJet's MLOps team. And uh, Ioannis is also one of the graduates of our MLOps Zoom camp. And I was actually quite surprised that uh, he actually took it with his experience. He should have been one of the instructors, actually. But I'm pretty happy <laughs> that you, Ioannis, did take the course because of other, otherwise we wouldn't be talking right now. So yeah, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me and for the introduction. It's been a pleasure. So before we go into our main topic of business and data science, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yeah, absolutely. So education-wise, I have a bachelor in mathematics and a postgraduate in uh, data science from the Essex University. It's been fun because I wasn't always planning to become a data scientist. Essentially, I'm I'm Greek, and this is important because in Greece, usually when you have a bachelor in mathematics, there are not many things that you can do with this degree. You either become a, a teacher, which is although exciting, it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue, or find a way to mix it with some other things. So I was, after I finished my bachelor, I was thinking about financial mathematics, actuarial mathematics. So I didn't know what to do. And luckily, I got introduced to the notion of data science by watching Netflix, <laughs> actually the, uh, the famous Sherlock series. And there was a moment where it was uh, Sherlock and John Watson. And John Watson was impressed by Sherlock's decision-making skills. So I remember he asked him, how do you make decisions that fast and so accurately? And Sherlock replied, um, you see, but you do not observe. So that was uh, John's problem. And that really sit well with me. And I was thinking, I want to improve my decision-making skills. And this is how I started Googling around decision-making, inference, and all this kind of stuff. And I came across data science as a profession back then. That was in 2016, I think. Yeah. So yeah, I did a master's in data science from the Essex University, followed by a three-month internship where I was able to develop a machine learning model to predict children that are being abused in their parental environment. And that was great because it showed me the power that lies behind data science and machine learning in general. So I knew that this is what I wanted to do. So after the internship, I had a four-month experience working as a data scientist consultant at a company named Aka Technologies in Geneva, Switzerland. And after four months, I was I decided to move back to the UK, where I started working as a data scientist for EasyJet, where I'm still working. So yeah, I started as a Graduate data scientist, got promoted to senior data scientist. And right now I'm still a lead data scientist working with the business stakeholders and try to transform 
exit to become the world's most data-driven airline. So yeah, that's pretty much me. Do you get a discount at EasyJet <laughs> if you want to travel somewhere? Yeah. I think that's one of the of the best perks that we have. And uh, yeah, the tour of <laughs> that we do, and it's an excellent discount. I use it all the time to travel and you know travel to different European cities. It's been great. Was the EasyJet is uh, like when it comes to Berlin? I don't know about the other cities, and I'm based in Berlin. Yeah, like it's one of the airlines I usually use when I want to go somewhere. I'm happy to hear that <laughs> we're doing something good then. <laughs> Well, in terms of coverage, yeah, it's probably one of the of the best ones. At least like, I don't know, going to Italy or some other countries. Funny that you mentioned the Sherlock TV show. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that there is a different TV show? It's an American one called Numbers. Have you seen that one? Oh, that's interesting. Not really, but noted. It's about a mathematician who uses his skills to solve crimes okay and so, like they're they're using statistics and like data science well I, I wouldn't call it data science in the sense you and i mm-hmm. yeah mean it but still it's quite close i'm always excited to hear these use cases where data science is being used for good like the the project that you just mentioned solve crimes or the internship that they did i think it's it's great to show how data science can serve the people and not, you know, be present to replace people's jobs or some of the things that uh, you hear from time to time. Yeah, so it's uh, called numbers. And I think the E there is spelled like with a three. So it's like number <laughs> ah, yeah. there. I think it rings a bell. Yeah. Anyways, what do you do as a lead data scientist? So, yeah, currently my, my role as a lead data scientist is I partner up with the business stakeholders from digital customer and marketing. These are the departments that I oversee from the data science and analytics perspective. And I try to understand their pain points and translate them into data products and data solutions that go into production and solve whatever problem we encounter at the time. So you can think of my role as having the accountability of the projects to ensure that they reach production. And of course, we meet the financial benefits that have been agreed at the beginning of every financial year. In practice, uh, what does it mean when you say that you partner with business stakeholders from like this digital marketing? How does it <laughs> look like in practice? Is it like you practically reaching out to them, saying, hey, can we talk? Uh, or they reach out to you or it's a combination of yeah. both? Like how, how does this collaboration look in your case? It's a great question. So usually, one of the things that I love about EasyJet is that it's a really friendly environment. So you can think of it as me having a close collaboration in terms of meetings, sitting with them during the business days, and try to understand what are the decisions that they have to take on a daily basis, and try to understand from their perspective what their strategy is, what their vision is for their department, and understand how data science can support into reaching their vision. So this is how it looks uh, on a day-to-day basis, meetings and meetups, et cetera. So they have like their usual day-to-day meetings and you are like, hey, can I join you? I just want to observe what you do. It's kind of, yes. It's a, we have a recurring meeting where we discuss about what they're doing, uh, brainstorming together. So we have, a, um, let's call it a framework where we discuss about their day-to-day job and what they're trying to improve and see how I can 
support them with uh, data science. Mm -hmm. So you have like a monthly or something like that meeting that is recurrent? Even more frequent, actually weekly. A weekly, okay. And then there are some leaders from these departments and you talk to them saying like, hey, what's up? Um, what are the current problems you have? How is it going with like the previous projects we implemented for you and things like that, right? Absolutely. The way I frame it is I think of the head of uh, the different departments from digital customer marketing as being my best friend in the working environment and try to understand how I can be supportive and how I can help them. So how can you be supportive? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how does it look like? It's um, so usually it involves of me getting enough business knowledge. So if you talk about digital, it involves of me understanding how the, let's say the PPC advertisements work or SEO, the organic results work and try to understand what their aim is, which are the metrics that they're interested in and what do they do on a day-to-day -day basis and see, you know what, if we had a predictive model that could do X, Y, and Z, would that benefit you? And then have this kind of discussion that would essentially get, create some clarity on the business problem that we will then try to tackle. I heard this word digital department many times, but I, to be honest, I have no idea what it actually means. And probably it means different things at different companies, right? Yeah. Because like different companies need to do different things. So in your case, you mentioned like PPC advertisement. I don't know what PPC is like pay-per-click, right? Exactly. It's pay-per-click. So it's also some marketing stuff case of digital. Exactly. So pay-per-click, if you think of that, these are the sponsor ads that you see on Google. So if you go on Google and you type flights from, let's say, London Gatwick to Berlin, and you press enter, you see the 10 results that appear on the first page of Google. And what you can see the first one are usually the sponsor ads. And uh, these are the, the pay-per-click ads as we, these are known. And the reason they're called pay-per-click is, is because there is an incurred cost every time a person clicks on that specific ad. So we're trying to, in a way, optimize which sponsored ads should appear on top. And we do the same thing for SEO results, which are the organic URLs that appear, which are usually below the sponsor ads. It's a way, in a way, an optimization that we're trying to do so that the flights that we want to promote are always appearing on top and then hence we can improve the conversion rate. I was uh, checking the other day the cost per click in Google for keywords like MLOps or MLOps courses. <laughs> yep. And it starts like, a, sometimes it's for more niche words, it's like three euros per click. Mm -hmm. And then for more broad, it's like four or even five, which was like, wow, is it that expensive? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you have to bid on the right keywords and then, you know, become relevant and all this kind of stuff that are happening in Google behind the curtains. For you as a lead data scientist, you need to figure out what these people talk about, like what does PPC mean, like what they care about, what is optimization, right? And then with this knowledge that you can say extract from them, learn from them, you then go and share this knowledge with the data science team. And you say, okay, these are the problems that these departments struggle with. Let's think how we can help them, right? And then you translate absolutely the problems into the, like the language of data science, and then together with the team, you work on solving this, right? 
Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. In addition to communicating with stakeholders, you, I think you mentioned other things like uh, you make sure that projects reach production. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean for you? Like first, okay, you talked with the stakeholders, you understood that these are the pain points they have. What happens next? What do you do next, lead data scientist? As soon as I have the problem statement defined, we have a, an operating model within EasyZet that really helps us understand, first of all, what are the different steps that we have to take to ensure that the solution of the problem will reach production. And then we make sure that we adhere all to all these different steps. So there's a, a sequence that we follow. And as a lead data scientist, I am accountable to ensure that all of these processes are being followed. So we make sure that when the data product reaches production, it will have the impact that was expected. And yeah, that's pretty much it in terms of my role. I can talk a little bit more about the framework if you want me to. No, it's quite interesting. Like, what are these uh, steps and what is this operating model? Yes, the operating model that we have, I think it's one of the best things that, that we have created in EZ. And I had a speech about it at the MLOps Summit. So the operating model consists of different stages. I think it's uh, four phases, if you will, that highlights all the different steps that we need to take to ensure that the model will, will reach production. So the first thing is uh, debt clarity on the problem statement. And this is pretty much my role. This is the, we like to call it the single front door where we take a business problem or an idea into the funnel. As soon as we do this, we have a triage where all the, the relevant stakeholders uh, come together and we discuss a little bit more about the idea. You would expect people as um, business analysts attending the finance team to understand about the financial benefits that might be involved with the project. Uh, lead data scientists, data engineers, every single person that needs to be involved into that specific project. As soon as we, we do, and we understand that, you know what, there's a real possibility and something good in this project, and we can take this on, we prioritize on based on different ideas that have been submitted over time, and then we create something like a priority that, you know what, this problem is the most crucial one, so let's try to work on that first. As soon as we have picked up a project, we create a so-called uh, definition of done, which is at the business understanding phase, where we try to understand a little bit more about which are the requirements that we need to tick in order to make this project a success, which are the business KPIs that we need to influence, improve, or increase or decrease, and how we can measure the benefits. Meaning that if I, let's say, give you a random numbers, as an outcome, how do you know that these random numbers are good or not? So we make sure that we create a document, the definition of done document that highlights that this is the data product, this is what production looks like, and these are the benefits that are going to come based on this calculation methodology. A large document? Not that large. Uh, usually it's, it's a single document. We have a, a template so you can think about uh, two to three pages, tops is. Two to three, okay. Yeah, it's it's not that much, I think, mm -hmm. but it's a yeah. It puts at a high level. What are the things that we need to make sure to deliver at the end of the day, so we don't have really much of a moving target, if you will. So I assume you have some sort of a template, right? Absolutely. And then I don't know, Google Document or maybe a Google Contents page, and then you just copy this page, and then you fill in the the things. Fill in the information. Absolutely. And you do this. Not me at this stage, 
I oversee the entire procedure, but usually we have a, a business analyst having workshops with a business stakeholder who are going to be the business accountable for, for the project. And we try to capture every single requirement to this uh, definition of done document. Of course, I make sure that I'm there. Mm -hmm. So here you don't talk about machine learning yet, more like about, no. okay, this is the project and this is the impact we expect this project to achieve. And this is how we measure this impact and things like that, right? So like you don't talk exactly. about machine learning at all at this stage, right? Nothing at all. It just captures the definition of then captures just the what of the product and not the how. Yeah. So no, no discussion of solution at all, right? So it just nothing whatsoever. Because at the end of the day, we may have a document and we may realize down the line that it's not something feasible because we may know that what we need to do. And after we have all the requirements, we realize that, you know what, the data is, is not actually there, which means that this is a no-go. And when that happens, although it doesn't happen frequently, this is a fail-fast scenario. And then we say, you know what, we cannot proceed that. Let's take the second in line. But this happens later, right? So at the business understanding step, absolutely, you come with this definition of done uh, document for a project, which is like two, three pages long, right? And then I guess you proceed to the next step, which is, you mentioned checking data and things like that. Exactly. So as soon as everybody has signed off this document, the business stakeholders, uh, data scientists, uh, which is uh, me in that case, data engineers, every single person involved, then we proceed to the next phase, which is, uh, this is where the data science involvement starts to, to kick in. Inception, you can think of it as the EDA, the exploratory data analysis, where we try to ensure that we have everything that we need. That includes uh, access to the data, if the data is already present, any GDPR concerns that we might encounter, explore the data sources as in uh, different distributions and this kind of concern that we might have. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Is this uh, like at which stage do you actually, so you said this is when yeah, data science kicks in. Is this at this stage you think like, do I even need machine learning here or it's more like analytical project? Absolutely. Uh -huh. Okay. So as soon as we uh, take off the inception phase, this is where the data scientists and analysts come together and we brainstorm about the solution. So we discuss about the how. And at this point, we understand whether this is a, a data science project that would involve machine learning or a data analytics, whether it's a hybrid between the two different subteams uh, in the data science and analytics. To be honest, we do have some, let's say, idea when the business stakeholders discuss about the problem. And we may have already decided at this point that this is a data science project or a data analytics, but at the inception, we're absolutely certain that you know what, this is 100% a data science project, for instance. It's just a confirmation that we had uh, when, when we started. And depending whether it is a data science project or it is not, I guess the next step would be different, right? Absolutely, yeah. And if it's not a data science project, then you say, okay, like I'm a data scientist, I cannot help you. Then somebody else takes this over, right? Not really. I'm the accountable for both data science and analytics project. Uh, the only okay. difference that if it's a it's an analytics uh, project, the technical lead that will work on the project is going to be a data analyst instead of a data scientist. 
I still mm. hold the accountability of making sure that the project is, is delivered end to end. So what's the next step? Or is it different like for different projects? Not really. As soon as you have an idea and you have defined the how of solving the, uh, the problem statement, this is where we move into the research and development phase. This is the hardcore modeling steps in data science, where we follow all the different agile methodologies, spring planning, stand-ups, retrospective, all the usual suspects are usually where we start tackling all the different stories that we have defined in a, in a Kanban board, for instance, and we define sprints. Uh, this is the goal for sprint one, sprint two, and yeah, this is where we start building whatever that, that solution might look like. We also make sure that the stakeholders are closely working with us because you have to make sure that it's a common problem that we're trying to tackle and you want to make sure that the business stakeholders are part of the team and they're not just sitting around waiting for a delivery in three to six months time, depending on the, the complexity. So we make sure that we tackle that as a single team. So that's why I have a very regular weekly, at least weekly meetings with them, right? So you want to keep them updated. What is the progress? What is being solved right now? What stage each of the projects uh, is, right? And things like that. Absolutely. And also at the end of every sprint, which is usually bi-weekly, we have a demo where we show these are the things that we have delivered. And if possible, we have um, an actual demo where they can get a sense of what we're building and influence the, the, some of the steps that we might take on a future sprint. So they have, they oversee the project from the beginning all the way to the end. So they make sure that what gets they deliver at the end of the day, it's something that they will end up using. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, you also give them some sort of uh, demo, like, I don't know, a stream lit up or something like this that they can play with and they see, okay, like, this is not what I meant, right? Or, okay, this is what I need. Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. And after the R&D phase, is there anything else? Yes, then we have the pilot phase. In the definition of that, we have already defined the KPIs and the baseline that we're trying to beat. Usually there's an existing as this process that we're trying to beat with a new solution. And we move into the pilot phase where we, usually that looks like a, an A-B testing where we test the as-is process with a 2B process and ensure that the product that we have built improves the KPI of interest. And we also collect feedback during that time from the business stakeholders because that can influence a second iteration of the product if needed. So yeah, after the creation of the model, Usually it's the pilot phase to ensure that we get the benefits that we were expecting. And if that succeeds, then I guess it's deployment. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to come up with a joke that it's like a pilot phase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not creative. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. <laughs> so, okay, the, the steps are, the phases are, the first it's the business understanding phase when we come, come up with uh, this definition of done for a project. Mm -hmm. Then it's inception phase where people actually, so in the first step, you talk about the what, like not how. The second step is how. Mm -hmm. You, at the second step, you discuss the actual solution. And then you also decide if it's like a data science project or more like an analytical project. Then during the R&D phase, you work on the development, research and development of the, the project, right? 
And then you mm-hmm. mentioned, you also talked about how exactly you do this, like all these agile techniques. And then at the end, there is the pilot phase where you take what you developed and then you see if the KPI you defined in the definition of done, you can actually meet them, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's correct. So that's the four steps that you mentioned. Is there a fifth one, like after the pilot, like production? It's usually the production. And as you probably already know, production is a spectrum. So production might mean surfacing some insights into um, a Tableau dashboard, for instance. It can be uh, some predictions being surfaced into an external tool. That can be all, all sorts of different things. So depending on what this means, we have the appropriate, let's say, production framework, uh, which is still being developed at the moment. Of course, ML of journey is still at the beginning. But yeah, after we see that the benefits are already there and we beat the baseline, we roll this out to the entire market, depending on the project, of course. And yeah. And mostly the use cases you deal with, they're related to marketing and similar cases, like all these campaigns. Yes, absolutely. It's mostly digital and marketing. So you don't uh, try to work with, I don't know, the actual planes and the schedules? Not myself, but that's, a, that's an excellent question because as a lead data scientist, I'm looking after digital customer marketing, but we have three more actually lead data scientists where every single one is looking after a different, let's say, division of the business. So we have, we have a lead data scientist who's, uh, who's looking after scheduling a network another data lead data scientist looking after the ops within EasyJet and, of course, pricing and revenue. Yeah, I noticed that tickets became more expensive after COVID. <laughs> I have no idea about it. No comment. Because you have discounts, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember it was like um, a trip to Italy before COVID costed like... Sometimes it was actually more expensive to get the bus that goes from the airport to the city, then like the actual ticket. But yeah, these changes, uh, these days are gone. Yeah, I, I guess inflation as well. Yep. Yeah, I was always wondering like how companies like Ryanair can keep their costs that low, like when it's like 10 euros for a ticket. Mm-hmm. But yeah, probably they cannot because now it's different. Exactly. I think it's different business models that different airlines operate and there's a specific mindset that allows, let's say, Ryanair to operate with tickets that have that uh, price compared to EasyJet or Wizard, different competitors, of course. Yeah. yeah. You talked uh, quite, uh, you already talked a little bit about Agile methodologies that you use at, during the R&D phase. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, maybe you can talk more about this, like how you structure your day-to-day work when it comes to working on data science projects. Because like in my experience, I remember it was some time ago and we tried Scrum. So like maybe I'll take a step back because like my background was originally a Java developer and Scrum works quite well for like uh, well-defined developed like software engineering projects, right? But when it comes to data science, it's a little bit more ambiguous because like you don't know if what you will have at the end like the thing you will build, will it work or not, right? Because in software engineering, it's usually more, it's less undeterministic, let's say. Usually you know that uh, you will eventually build the thing that solves the problem. You just don't always know how long it will take, right? Mm -hmm. 
But when it comes to data science, you not only don't know how long it will take, but you also don't know whether it will actually work at the end. Yeah, that's true. How, how do you structure your processes around this problem? So you mentioned Agile, uh, sprint planning, Kanban. So I'm curious to know like in more details, like how exactly you structure the work. Yes. So this is, of course, I was working as a technical lead as a senior data scientist, which means that at the moment as a lead data scientist, I don't, let's say, schedule be all the agile uh, ceremonies. But as a technical lead, when I was a senior, I did have that experience. So what I was following is all the different agile methodologies that have been introduced. I was making sure to, to, uh, to stick with them. And what you said about being ambiguous, this is actually true because in data science, you don't really know what you're building and until you go and actually build it. And this is when you realize whether it's, it's working or not. So what we try to do to make the, the process a little bit simpler to ensure that it, it's working is we have the notion of MVPs, which is, of course, minimum viable products, which means that on the definition of done document, we have all the list of requirements that we know we have to build, which means that we kind of have a sense already of what we're building and which is the direction that we're taking. And because we know what we're building, it's a little bit easier to estimate the time that it might take for us to deliver a single requirement or a single feature. That doesn't mean that we're always following Scrum. Personally, I'm I'm an advocate of Kanban because of the complexities that have to do with the data science and uh, machine learning. But usually we're a little bit good in estimating that a specific feature is going to take, let's say, one week and a half. So we, even though we may not follow strictly the Scrum methodology, we actually have a Kanban board and we try to put some timelines into our schedule to ensure that, you know what, we will have something built by the end of this uh, two-week sprint. And of course, we, we make this with um, all the different agile ceremonies that we mentioned. So we have the sprint planning, uh, ensuring that we have the different complexities allocated to the different stories. Of course, there are many ways to do that. But yeah, at the end of the day, we do have some sense of how much something is going to take because of the notion of MVP. And we try to uh, stick to this uh, two-week sprint. So like you group all your work into like these two-week sprints. Like at the beginning of each sprint, you do some sort of planning where you decide, okay, for these two weeks, for this sprint, we take this, this, and this, and it will take like probably all two weeks, right? Exactly, depending on the resources. Mm -hmm. The resources is the people who work on this, right? Mm -hmm. Something to add here that also helps us estimate the different stories and how much they're going to take also comes at the inception phase. Because at the inception phase, we uh, dive into the data and try to understand a little bit about the the quality of the data, how much pre-processing we might have to do, or how much time a specific implementation might take, depending on the complexity of the project. So the inception phase also gives us a sense of an understanding of how much time this specific implementation is going to take. But that helps us estimate a little bit the timings. Can you maybe walk us through the entire sprint? So the sprint starts with planning and I think it ends with demo. What what happens in between? Yes. Uh, so in between, we have the daily stand-ups where 
of course, it's um, it can be a written stand-up or an actual 15-minute stand-up where we go, usually in the morning, where all the team comes together and we say, you know what, I've been working in this story. This is the progress I, I made so far. This is the plan I'm going to work on today or for the next couple of days. And these are any blockers that I'm encountering at the moment. Usually when this happens, you have a, a senior member jump in to support. So we make sure that all the blockers are removed so we can deliver the uh, project in time or the feature in time. And of course, depending on the complexity of the project, that can be, um, let's say, an everyday stand-up or every other day. really depends. But I think what works the best, according to my experience, is having, let's say, two stand-ups per week so that it gives time for the people to work on on the different stories. And of course, if something goes wrong, you can always reach out to a teammate to ask for support. So yeah, that's pretty much it in terms of the stand-ups. It's not a very heavy process, right? So what I understood is like you have this estimate, like the start of the sprint where you estimate, then you have daily or not daily, like some stand-up meetings during the week. And then at the end you have the demo, mm-hmm. right? And that's basically the process, right? So it's not very heavy. Absolutely. Because I know in Scrum you have like all sorts of other things like, I don't know, grooming. Like, I don't even remember what else, but I remember that the process can get quite heavy if you follow the book and try to implement everything. No, that's true. But I think the notion of agile is actually being agile and see what works for your team and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. So we have tried with different meetings according to what has been proposed over time. But we have identified that this, this framework that we have works great for our team. And we, uh, we follow this specific framework. One of the things that uh, Ben Diaz, which is the director of the data science and analytics team, says is we have to be agile in being agile. And I think that summarizes <laughs> everything. How does uh, estimating look like for you? Do you use like planning poker or things like that? Or? It depends on, so different teams uh, use different techniques. We have um, the teaser sizing. Sometimes we follow the Fibonacci sequence to allocate points. We also have Scrum Master that uh, support us in, in that way. We make sure that we don't use days as a way of estimation. So whatever has worked for the different team members over time, it's um, usually the technical lead of the project decides which method they, they want to use. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So you do some sort of planning book, right? Yeah, yeah. And how does it look like? So like the, I mentioned that there's a meeting. In this meeting, you have different uh, people, like you, a Scrum Master, a project lead, data scientist who implement this. Yep. And somebody, for example, you or the project lead says, and let's now talk about this task, this story that we are going to take in this sprint, which is about, I don't know, changing the color or changing the chart on this dashboard. Or... Yeah, whatever that might be. Everyone says, okay, like, I think this is a very easy task. And then... Exactly. And then you put the number on top, depending on which one do you think is the most complex one, you put the numbers and this is pretty much it. So every single team member, of course, there are always outliers, but usually you have all the, all the different stories and you say, okay, which one do we think is the most complex one that's allocated to that specific number? And then we increase the complexity depending on the methodology that we use. Yeah. Interesting. And in your experience, does it work well? I think so. I think so. At least. There has been examples where it has worked 
perfectly. And of course, there are always <laughs> the bad examples where you can see that you're quite off when it comes to, to timelines. But I think the bottom line is that you have to adjust and may, be mindful of the fact that you not everything is expected to go well on every single project. So as soon as you manage the, uh, your expectations, I think you're good. And when it comes to business stakeholders, I assume you don't invite them to your stand-ups? Yeah, we don't. But you probably invite them to the demos, right? Yes, that's correct. And I think that's a great way to for the business stakeholders to get a sense of what we're building because they can get an early interaction with the tool and the direction that we're taking. And they also feel part of the team and that makes them more engaged to what we're building and you know, create this sense of we are a team and we're trying to tackle this problem together instead of us acting like consultants. This is what we're building for you, just use it. I also imagine that the business stakeholders, so it could be like head of marketing or head of digital or some other head, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily know what it's like, I don't know, very curve means and things like that, or precision recall. So when it comes to demos that are maybe a little bit more technical and they, they see it and they just, okay, I don't understand, but I trust you that you do your work. <laughs> yeah. uh, right? How do you deal with uh, this when like stakeholders do not necessarily understand what the team is talking about? Or you maybe educate stakeholders, educate the team both or what else? Mm-hmm. I think in cases like that, you really have to be a chameleon and this is where soft skills come into place because we, when we have um, a demo session at the end of, uh, of every sprint, we have to make sure that we, we never use technical language with them because we, you have to adjust your content for non-technical audience. So I don't think there's been a, a single project, let's say, where we have thrown some, let's say, technical jargon, if you will. You indicate the team members that you, you, you can say, look, if you say RC curve, they will like, okay, what is that? So you teach them how they present, they can present the findings, the projects, the demos in a way that stakeholders will understand. Right? Exactly. We never use any technical language with them. And if there's something that you need to explain that might require uh, some technical knowledge, we always make sure that we use examples that can be easily interpretable compared to a technical implementation that uh, you have seen. So for instance, if you think about recommender systems and you want to understand how a specific person is closely related to, to another, you wouldn't say, you know what, as a measure of understanding how close two individuals are, we use, let's say, the Euclidean distance. You actually put two examples where you say, you see that these two people look similar and you don't really need to define similar in this context, because they can see that, you know what, all the different rows, for instance, look the same compared to, uh, to another individual that is, let's say, completely on a different cluster. So when you want to explain these kind of technical details, you can always use an example that would make sense for a non-technical audience. Well, I assume that uh, this is also a skill, presenting your findings in a way that non-technical people will understand. I think so. And this is a... Uh... It can be even more difficult to learn the skill, to master the skill, let's say, even more difficult than, I don't know, learning machine learning, at least for technical people. <laughs> Potentially, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. 
who are used to terminals and notebooks and you know, all this stuff, then going and presenting something to business stakeholders might be not something they, they are used to uh, doing. So how do you educate people? Like, how do you help them learn the skill or master the skill? <laughs> I don't think there's an easy way. I think this, this comes with experience and just making sure that you always enhance your soft skills. One of the things that uh, usually helps is if you think about all the different inner sentences that people usually say, uh, teach it to me like I'm a five-year-old, or I think Einstein has said that if you can explain something in simple terms, you don't know it that well. So I guess it's just a matter of reminding people that the people that we have on the other side of the call, they don't have the technical experience that you have. So try to speak their language and explain what you're doing like you're speaking to some five-year-old. So yeah, I guess there's no easy way to do this. Just this comes with experience and constant feedback, of course. Yeah, and um, I guess having a five-year-old helps. (laughs) 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 I can only imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe if you don't uh, have a kid who is five years old, you have no idea like how much knowledge they actually have. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes, so I have a, a son, he's seven years old, and he sometimes asks me things uh, like, I don't know how GPS works. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. <laughs> and yeah. Then, <laughs> and let's say if I go on the internet and uh, type like how GPS works, then the explanation would be like super technical. And then, okay, how do I yeah. explain this to you? <laughs> so it's a skill. Well, one hack I found. Um, Quite useful is just asking ChatGPT. I guess everyone uses this now. Oh yeah, of course, absolutely, absolutely. I still remember some of the days where ChatGPT wasn't out. I remember I was a graduate data scientist at the time, and I got the opportunity to present something to a business stakeholder. I think uh, this is when I found out, not in a nice way, that my ways of presenting and soft skills are not as good because I remember it was really cringe moment where I'm trying to pres- to explain why having uh, 99% accuracy as a wider term doesn't mean anything unless you know about the balance of the labels. So yeah, I think it was it didn't go well. So I think this, this pushed me a little bit to try to understand how I can present to someone that doesn't have the, the technical expertise. So I think it comes with experience at the end of the day. And uh, actually, like we can think, think of ourselves as five-year-old kids too when it comes to learning new things. Because like, for example, when I read this article about how GPS works, I am clueless, like, okay, like there's a bunch of terms that try to explain it, but like, I don't really understand what's happening there. So the explanation that ChatGPT gave to my son was actually helpful for me to also understand that. So I guess we can, I don't know if I should say that, but maybe we can think of stakeholders as kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. I'm really happy that all the stakeholders that we have within is that are really iterate in terms of data science, mathematics, but it makes our work really, really easy. So I'm so thankful to that. Yeah. Great. So also I wanted to spend a bit of time actually talking about mm-hmm. the MLOps Zoom Camp course, because I was... Yeah, of course. I was really surprised. So when I looked at your background, I thought like, why Johannes even considered taking mm-hmm. 
because with your experience, you're already doing like all the things you talked about right now. Yeah. I'm wondering what uh, inspired you to take our course? So well, why did you decide to take it? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing is, as a lead data scientist, my role has become a little bit more managerial compared to, you know, the amount of time that I have to spend doing technical stuff. And if you ask me, I'm having a, a bachelor in mathematics, I'm a geek at heart, which means that every opportunity that I get to get my hands on uh, dirty with some data and build something myself, I always take it. And the MLOps specifically is, from my experience, I'm usually involved into, let's say, building the models. And I didn't get at least much exposure into the productionization side of things. And I don't know, it's just I was intrigued by the course, the uh, content. Of course, I was using MLflow, but then we had Prefect, the data engineering team, and we have using Airflow. So I'm like, let me get into that engineering uh, side of things a little bit more and also get the opportunity to get my hands on dirty. I think this is what clicked for me. And I'm like, yeah, let me go for it. Mm -hmm. Well, as somebody who was a lead data scientist in the past, like one problem for me was always time. Like with all these meetings, <laughs> yeah. stakeholder management, like how do I actually find time to still be hands-on and like experiment with things? Absolutely. And then sometimes like I wanted to take a course, but then I didn't have time because like there's only 40 hours <laughs> that you spent at work. How did you solve this problem for you? <laughs> That's a great question. I think one of the of the good things about my decision to become a data scientist is that I genuinely love the profession. So I would be a data scientist as a hobby if my day job was something different, which means that even when I finish job, I don't feel drained about all of the information that I had to go through throughout the day. And I genuinely enjoy working as a, as a data scientist, which means that I consider that as, a, as an activity rather than as a let's say something that will consume my time. So yeah, it was just great. I had uh, my morning cup of coffee and during the, the weekends, I was taking my laptop, go to, to a nice coffee place and yeah, just watch your courses and try to do the assignments. It's been fun and I got a lot of experience out of it, to be honest. So yeah, no, it's, it was just great. So instead of watching Netflix, you watch the courses, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely... Okay. And, uh, well, it sounded like uh, the course was useful for you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Was it uh, more mostly like this, uh, I don't know if I should call entertainment uh, part or more like self-educating part, or you also took something out of this course and applied it at work? It was a little bit of, of both. So it was entertainment in the sense that I got confirmation that what I'm doing is correct, but also I got the opportunity to play with technologies that uh, otherwise I wouldn't have time to do. So one of the examples is uh, Prefect, for instance, because as a lead data scientist, I'm not that involved in the engineering side of things. So I wouldn't the opportunity to play with Airflow or Prefect. So yeah, I think it, it had a good balance of both getting confirmation of what I'm doing is correct, but also get learn something new. And this is really important because as you mentioned in the beginning, I'm leading the MLOps team within EasyJet. And even though I give the guidance and the influence of where we're going as a data science and analytics team with our MLOps journey, 
it was great for me to understand a little bit about the technical landscape because I feel that that's the best way to influence a specific direction. So that really worked well. And actually, before our conversation, before our interview, I had a chat with Elena from Evidently. Oh, that's nice. And she said, Johannes is coming to your uh, podcast. So make sure to ask about Evidently. <laughs> Absolutely. Evidently, I think, and I'm not afraid to say this, but I think Evidently is the best Python library there is out there for a model monitor. And this is something, the final assignment that I did for the MLOps ZoomCap also gave me the opportunity to play with the Evidently library a little bit more because I had the time to play with Evidently even, I think, three, two years ago when it was still, a, in a way, dev version. And I remember this one, the first time that I reached out to them because I said, you know what, I have implemented that and it doesn't look correct. And there was actually a bug and this is how the, the networking kicked in. But yeah, Evidently, absolutely the best Python library for model monitor. Do you use it at EasyJet too? Absolutely. We, uh, we use it in the sense of embedding that with, uh, within our MLOps framework. It's still a work in progress, but we have made uh, tremendous progress all these years. And I think especially now that we're trying to define the, our MLOps capabilities, evidently is the best thing that could happen to me and to, 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 to that extent. Just curious, uh, like, uh, I know evidently right now have uh, their own dashboard, yeah. but probably what you do is based on some sort of like other monitoring framework like Grafana or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, right now we're thinking about using the Tableau dashboard and I have a proof of concept that I'm about to present to EasyZ, to the MLOps team. But before that, because I had already implemented a proof of concept, we weren't using Grafana. We didn't have a UI, to be honest. I had implemented a custom function that would trigger an email alert to the technical lead of the project in case there was a data drift or model drift detected. So it was during where I think two to three years ago. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned Tableau, and it's interesting how versatile this tool is. It's not just a dashboard. <laughs> yeah. You can even build simple, like rudimentary monitoring in Tableau. So I remember uh, we had problems with data quality and then our analyst quickly came up with a dashboard that shows how many records are there yeah. each day in the important tables. And then what he did next is uh, configuring Tableau to send an alert if the number for one of the days was less than expected. That's true. And like he did that in like 30 minutes or something. That was amazing. Wow. Okay. That's great. <laughs> Indeed. Sounds amazing. Kudos. I mean, uh, at the end, it's just a bunch of SQL queries and then knowing where to put these queries and which button to click to create an alert. Of course. He knew how to do this. Not everyone knows that. But it was like quick and dirty solution that worked pretty well. Yeah, it's amazing. No, that's good. It's always exciting when someone delivers something that fancy in such a short period of time. Yeah, I think we're almost, uh, we should be finishing soon. So, well, maybe I'll ask you that. So we talked a lot about communicating with stakeholders, with business stakeholders. We also talked about agile processes. We talked a little bit about MLOps. Mm -hmm. Are there any good resources that you can recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about these topics? Like, let's say about uh, processes, about communicating with business stakeholders, 
let's say probably when you were learning like how to do your job well, maybe you came across some of the books or courses that helped you. Yes. There is a single resource that I would recommend to every single aspiring data scientist, data analyst to watch out for. I'm not sure if you are if you know Kasi Kozikor. This is the decision intelligent advocate from Google, at least at Google, I think she as she resigned. But Kasi Kozikor and her course on YouTube, Making Friends with Machine Learning, I think it's the best resource there is out there in order to understand how you can communicate technical details to non-technical audience. I think the way she speaks and she expresses this kind of technical details in such a nice and direct way, I think it's one of the best skills that someone can get. And I think watching her YouTube videos, it helped me really understand what would be the best way to explain a technical term to someone that is not familiar with my world and data science in general. And I spent, I think, countless hours watching her videos, trying to analyze the way that she approaches things, terms, uh, or explaining how linear regression works. So if you want a uh, Kasi Kozikor from Decision Intelligence Science uh, from Google, her YouTube video, uh, Making Friends with uh, Machine Learning. At least this is how to communicate to a non-technical audience. And when it comes to technical details, I think different books like Pattern Recognition from uh, Bishop, it's one of the best books uh, that you can go. Uh, it's really heavy, so you have to make sure that you're comfortable with mathematics. Heavy in many senses. Because <laughs> I remember we used this book for my machine learning classes and then it was heavy to, to the class too. <laughs> it was heavy indeed, but I'm telling you, if you spend time and you actually focus and let's say you have a two-hour block, you block your time and you go through that, it's one of the best things that you can read to understand the mathematics behind machine learning and how it really works. And of course, LinkedIn helps a lot with different posts and uh, resources that are being recommended. I think on a day-to-day basis, LinkedIn is my go-to resource website. So Cassie, I think this is how I know her from LinkedIn. Because she, I don't know if, she, if she's active anymore, but she used to be quite active on LinkedIn. And this is where I would see her content. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Podcast, YouTube, LinkedIn, of course. Yeah, I think Ceci was all over the place. I think now she's building something on her own. This is why she left Google. And I'm really interested uh, to see what this is going to be. I know this is about decision-making and decision intelligence, which is something she has established on her own. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing her content. Yeah, thanks, Ioannis, for joining us today, for sharing all that you shared with us today. And yeah, it was amazing. Thanks for finding time. And thanks, everyone else, to for also joining us and being active here. I think uh, I actually forgot. Yeah, we had only one question that I accidentally forgot to mention. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, maybe, is it okay, Ioannis, if uh, Keith reaches out to you on LinkedIn and asks this question? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm always open. I'm, I'm super active on LinkedIn. So any question, whatever that may be, feel free to, to reach out on LinkedIn. I'll make sure to get back to you. Okay, thanks. And with that, uh, I guess we finish. So amazing. And thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Bye.